Tactics and Practice Podcast. Dobar dan, everyone, and welcome to Tactics and Practice Podcast, the audio extension of the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Arts discursive program of the same name, focusing on investigative art, society, and new technologies. Back in 2021, for the 10th editions of Tactics and Practice, writer and tech journalist Marta Peirano conceived and led a series of conversations with a range of world-class thinkers entitled Reprogramming Strategies for Self-Renewal. My name is Yanis Fakinyansha, I'm the Artistic Director of Axioma, and I'm ready to share with you the recordings of that event, one episode at a time, once a week. The eight episodes feature Martha in conversation with Kim Sterry Robinson, Benjamin Breton, Holly Jim Buck, Anab Jain, Kate Crawford, Joanna Moll, Astra Taylor and Eyal Baseman. This is episode number six entitled The Cloud, Everything is Not Connected, in which Marta talks with Barcelona-based artist and researcher Joanna Moll. The second part of the recording is spiced up by questions from the director of the Digitas Institute for Better Digital Accessibility, Dushan Tsaf, programmer and hacker Luca Frelich, philosopher and sociologist of culture Filip Muki Dobranich, and our dear online audience. If you missed the previous episodes, you can easily find them wherever you are listening to this one. So without further ado, here we go. Marta Perano talking to Joanna Moore. Hello to you all. It's been a very eventful summer, but we are finally back. And we have today Catalan artist Joanna Moll, who has been focusing in three main interrelated aspects of digital platforms and their ever-growing mega brain, the mm. cloud. These are those of surveillance, border politics, and their environmental cost. And while Joanna's projects are quite unsettling, they are always super interesting and very revealing. So it is a great pleasure to have her here today. Hi, Joanna, and welcome to Reprogramming. Hi, Marta. Thanks a lot for the very generous introduction. Also, thank you, Yanis. Um, I'm really happy to be here. I wish we could both be in Ljubljana. But, uh, yeah, wow, happy. so so, why? <laughs> so I would like to start with a series of works where you explore a very interesting and definitely disturbing setup of a, like apparently built by very organized citizens to co-patrol the Mexican border with the United States using a whole network of cameras, sensors and other devices. The series include the Texas border. Arizona moving at shot and virtual watchers. So can you explain why and how you decided to make those pieces and what you learned from them? Yeah, totally. And I'm really happy that you're asking about these projects because I haven't been talking about this project for ages. And I still consider that they are quite important and what they what they reveal is quite contemporary. Even though the first project I did on this matter was in 2010, which is 11 years ago, I can't believe that. Uh, so I did um, the first 2010, second 2011, and the third I did it in 2016 because it just took me a lot of time to produce it. Um, but in essence, I started when I was even a st master degree student. Um, and we had this subject where we had to uh, do something creative with video. 
And for me, it was very annoying that I had to do something creative to video just for the sake of being creative with video. So I started uh, to look through Fenland's camera, which I thought it would have a little bit more substance. And by chance, uh, I found these border cams um, in the internet. So this... Uh, Border counts in the U.S. and uh, Mexico border, especially in, uh, specifically in Texas from the U.S. side, uh, were monitoring from just a streaming platform, like a website, which had Amazon banners on top and apparently it had to be just self-sustained by advertising, which now it's something that's very obvious, but in 2010 it wasn't that obvious. But anyway, so this platform was called Blue Servo. And uh, it was basically an a online project which enforced or, or pretended uh, to do crowdsourcing of the national security, which is not clear, yeah, by just allowing regular citizens, civilians, to watch over the border and uh, monitor the border and alert the authorities if something dodgy was going on. Yeah, so basically, I was sitting in Barcelona. I would just sit in this beautifully designed interactive platform and just report anything uh, that I wanted to. But for me, I think the most striking thing about this project was that first it looked like a video game. Uh, so it was also gamification uh, of uh, the national security, which I think it's quite twisted. Um, but also you could never really see what was going on in the cameras. So people behind the cameras, they were just reporting stuff, but Maybe it was cows, maybe it was people fishing, and and very little times it was something like really was happening worth reporting. Uh, even though even the sheriffs uh, from Texas, they said that this was useless and they were sick and tired from receiving useless reports and they had to take care now thanks to this platform. Yeah. Um, so this is uh, the project I did, the Texas Porter. And uh, then the second version of this project responded to this um, to the question of who is these people behind the cameras and why would somebody spend so much time watching over the border from their home, right? This is free labor and, and it seems a bit ridiculous. I mean, you can do it a little bit for, I don't know, fun or fun, which I think it's also very, very perverse, uh, but just out of curiosity, right? So I started to research um, or try to find out uh, some of the identities of the virtual watchers, let's say. And I had a lot of luck because I found this Facebook group um, where they used, the Facebook group was used for the watchers uh, in order to interact, to, to interact with each other because the Blue Server platform didn't allow for users to interact. There wasn't any live chat. So this group, was it wasn't that big. It was around 400 users, 350 or 60-something users. But it was very, very interesting because suddenly all these people that were super anonymous in one platform, they were absolutely exposed in another platform. I infiltrated myself into a platform. I talked to everybody. And uh, suddenly, even if I was like an illegal immigrant that was crossing through the border, I could access Facebook and look at the face of the people that were watching over me. Yeah, and I found this completely ridiculous. So uh, that's what I did in the second project. So I just, it's sort of an odd interactive documentary which shows uh, all the interactions within this Facebook group during the three years that existed. And, it, and it's quite interesting because we, we found out that the people that uh, were part of this group and most active, 
were mostly retired people, unemployed people, or people that were sick and couldn't leave their homes. So they did this out of finding a meaning of their lives. A lot of people went as far as saying that they wouldn't know what to do with their time if they wouldn't have this platform. And I think this was quite representative. Um, so yeah, that's like these two projects. And there is one in the middle that also, which is the Arizona Move and Get Shot, which is also sort of an explanation of this sort of ridiculous obsession of watching the border uh, from the civilian part, which is always really not effective. So there was this family that they uh, placed all these cameras that had motion sensors. So every time somebody would cross in front of the cameras, uh, images would get triggered, right? So I have an archive of uh, almost four years of recording because I intercepted the camera and um, I took the images. Um, so I have an archive of more than 16,000 images and 90% of the images are basically pictures from the family um, throughout those years mostly animals. And there was a little bit of border patrol and a little bit of people crossing, yeah? Um, so I think it just talks, all these projects talks about this meaningless act of uh, using technology to control the borders. Uh, it's sort of enacting that technology is solving this, but at the end it doesn't. And when you look at these projects, this is, uh, I think this is very obvious, yeah? And I think that's mostly what the projects talk about. Maybe it has also to do with, I mean, when 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 the police is saying it's useless, it, there is an ongoing thing with this technology where they are useless if they are meant to do what you think they are doing. <laughs> Which in this case, I mean, it looks like they're patrolling the border, but what they are doing is actually creating a community, you know, over the idea of this immigration policing and, I don't know, taking control of the nation, I guess. And I think this last project that you were mentioning connects very cleanly with Amazon's ring, no? where people put cameras on the front doors of their chalets or houses, and these cameras form an actual network of neighbors that, without their knowing, was reporting to the police. And it makes me wonder if this network that doesn't exist anymore, no? this citizen patrolling border control, if it was happening today, Probably these cameras would be learning, would be using AI to learn from the patterns of movements of, uh, of you know, immigration routes or whatever in order to get better. Like I, I'm thinking a few days ago in the New York Times, there was this story about the Iranian top nuclear scientist being assassinated by a remote control machine in okay. Iran. And I was thinking how the eyes of these cameras could be such a disturbing, dangerous source of AI for future citizen patrolling, I guess, with more dangerous... Yeah, absolutely. Weapons. And I think that and, you can uh, add another side to that. It's just not that it's going to take biometric data from the immigrants crossing. It's going to extract a lot of data from the users and the patterns of surveillance and what they do and what they don't do and how to surveil, how many hours they surveil, etc., etc. So I think it's like the double side, right? We have technology here and you can monitor both sides of the story uh, without really knowing which the, what these companies are truly using and for which purposes. Absolutely, which makes like a very beautiful bracket because you were mentioning before that this, this whole network had like an Amazon banner on the top. And now this is being literally translated to the Amazon ring, which, by the way, is also becoming one of the most, uh, I guess, effective 
mesh networks in America real quick without the user's real knowledge, which is also a very Amazon thing to do. And I was also thinking like how to compare it to artist projects like like Taller de Arte Fronterizo, which in, in English, I think it was like the border, the border art workshop or something. Or the, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, or the trans, transborder immigrant tool, which was rebuilding the secondhand phones to help people not only find water and resources on their, on their traveling through the border, but also to document it, to tell their own stories, knowing how the collecting all this data can, you know, can move around and thinking of your projects of this particular kind, did you find ways to reuse this information to make it useful for different purpose? Maybe surveil the vigilantes or from the perspective of the actual immigrants moving? Well, I mean, I didn't, I mean, the projects are publicly available. So really, and anybody could see everything. And anybody could access the Facebook group and see what's going on. I didn't actively contact immigration association and communities to look at this because I felt, I'm not sure, I didn't feel it was my place because, uh, I mean, as far as I'm monitoring and I'm more in, in the technological part, I'm, I'm not part of uh, physically like all this ecosystem and this border. And I feel there is a lot of things uh, political dimension, historical dimension, emotional dimension that I'm missing by not being uh, is a person, an immigrant trying to cross immigrants to the US or being an American citizen living in the border, right? So I don't know, sometimes I feel it's, it's hard. It's very hard to put the limits where the projects have to stop, right? And, and until where do you get, where you can get, where you can, like the border of the ethics, right? Um, and I felt that with the... Um, these projects on the border between the US and, and, and Mexico was particularly uh, sensitive. So I didn't want to overstep more than, than what I felt I could, I honestly could uh, grasp or understand, which I think I went on very far already. And I feel that maybe some things I didn't have to uh, judge or do. And I did regardless. Uh, but I think it's, it's, it's very hard to limit like the range of your projects and where you can intervene and where you shouldn't intervene. I hope that answers the question. Before I forget, let me remind our listeners that you can submit your own questions on the chat that Axioma has opened in the, for this conversation in the website. So in this, in this other project called Algorithms Allowed, you do explore another interesting aspect of the border, although in this case, you're not even like, channeling the surveillance of a physical border, but kind of set up your own surveillance of a bureaucratic one, which in this case is the US embargo to Cuba, Iran, North Korea, and a number of different countries. And you find that this border is also being illegally crossed, but this time by Google. So can you explain it a little bit? Yeah, oh, I'm really happy because this was my favorite projects as well. And I barely talk about it. Thank you, Marta. <laughs> now, so um, this project talks about uh, the geopolitics of tracking. Um, so it was also, I think I will explain a little bit how I came out with this idea. So there is a colleague uh, that invited me to take part of uh, an exhibition. And it was supposed to be a very strange exhibition in eBay. So you had to build something uh, to sell in eBay, like a strange object. Uh, so obviously I was, uh, and I'm really into tracking and revealing uh, tracking and the surveillance practices. So I said, 
you know, out of the blue, it's like, okay, because I don't have time and I need to do something very fast. What about just seeing if there is a American trackers in a North Korean website, right? I tried to just put together the most uh, opposite things I could think of at the moment. That, okay, okay, so I'm going to do it. So I went to this page, I took the official page of uh, Republic of North Korea, and here there are Google Analytics cookies. I said, okay, well, that's funny. I mean, it's, it's sort of poetic, right? Um, so what I did, I just copy-paste uh, the code where the analytics uh, were expressed in the web page. I pasted it into a TXT file and I just put it in, a, if I, uh, you know, like I prepared an auction and, and that's it. So basically the item was a TXT file that was placed in my computer that contained some code that I copy-paste from a website in North Korea. That's it. Uh, so then I prepared the auction and when I was ready to publish it, that was like also an algorithm, that told me, oh, oh you cannot uh, publish this because uh, you are um, uh, not complying with the U.S. policy on embargoed goods coming from North Korea. I said, what? <laughs> this is not coming from North Korea. This is just in my computer. What is this? And I say, yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, just keep on going. I will just face any consequences that this might have. And then I had like another um, warning sign. This time was in red. The first one was orange. This was very red. It said, you cannot uh, post this auction. It's completely legal. There is a very clear policy against uh, um, transaction of goods between the US and North Korea. You cannot sell this. That's it. You can't. I said, okay, that's really crazy. You know, I'm selling, I mean, it's just a TXT file with Google cookies. There's nothing about North Korea, just the place I took it from, uh, which is not even a place because it was a website. But anyway, so the first thing I did, I went to the um, office. Uh, I don't remember the office. I think it's the Office of Export and Import in the US, uh, where they list the, um, the countries that they have heavy embargoes. So it was Cuba, it was Syria, it was Sudan. It was the, in that time, uh, the region of Crimea. And I think I'm forgetting something North Korea. So I write that everything was forbidden, just any type of cut, but also it was forbidden to do any transaction of data, software and data without the license authorization, right? So it said, okay, but that's very strange um, because Google cookies are found in North Korean website, you know, and Google must be aware of it because they're receiving this data. Uh, but the, the whole contradiction here and the very twisted thing is that Google didn't put this cookie in that website. Like the webmaster of North Korea put this Google Analytics cookie there. So who is being held responsible? And then I started to research and I found uh, cookies from Google in every single page I visited from Syria, from Cuba. There was Google Analytics in the, uh, the Communist uh, Party website, the main Communist Party website, which I found it very interesting also, you know, in terms of ideology, tracking people, being communist. Well, um, also in the official uh, website of the president of Iran, in the electronic government of Cuba, Google Analytics. I think it was, something was very stinky there. So with this project, what I tried to do, it was to reflect on that, that there was like a huge gray area where two countries uh, were heavily uh, acting against the law according to the American law, but nobody was being held accountable for, it, uh, for that. 
So I wanted to make like this huge archive of websites, which I didn't succeed because I ran out of funding, um, but I did a little bit. So, and the whole thing was to, um, idea was to um, contact this office of 14 exports and imports and ask them, you know, what's going on? Because you have to explain this. So it also talks about these geopolitics of tracking that it really matters, you know, because this has massive implications. There is a lot of data that are coming from those countries that are going to the US. And this also is uh, very juicy information. It's not nothing, right? Um, anyway, I think I've extended, but that was the main uh, goal of the project. Yeah, and also, like, it creates a problem with attribution, no? Because you yourself are saying that, that these trackers are not even placed there by Google, even though Google has to know that they are there because they are trackers, which means that yeah. they are receiving information from them, like they are pinging to the uh, control <laughs> all the information that trackers track. And I'm going to quote you, this work exposes the ambiguous relationship between code, public policy, geopolitics, economics, and the power in the age of algorithmic governance. And I wonder when you say this, that if this also mirrors in a way the impossibility of legislating these trackers or even any kind of data by, for instance, like the GDPR, like the impossibility of patrolling the behavior of this bits of code that have an attribution problem and there are everywhere jumping borders. So even just to put it in another, like maybe simpler way, how feasible, to put it as a question, how feasible legislation is when it comes to data extraction or to trackers? I think it's uh, highly difficult because technology changes faster than what we can understand and especially to what policymakers can understand, because you make one law and one second after, or even one micro millisecond after, the goal changes. And then the whole story changes. The way data was being collected one second ago is radically different from how data is being collected now. So it's it's really hard to follow this. I mean, unless there was like algorithmic policy making, right? Which also this would be very, very uh it's it's an impossibility, right? It would be a uh, uh, policy making made from machines. Right, and the whole thing is about speed of electricity. Humans do not think in the speed of electricity, but technology does. And then there is like a huge gap, and I, I don't think we will be able to uh, to um, how you call it to overcome this gap. And, and that's it. I mean, unless there is like a very ethical way of working from these giant IT corporations, yeah, or like some ethics in place that are not there. Yeah, and just like kind of machine data, but it's also personal data because trackers and trackers, no? But then when you go to the super, super personal data, like you have this work called, which I think is one of your most well-known works called the Dating Brokers, a work that was commissioned by Tactical Tech in Berlin. And you were looking for the limits of personal data markets in this platform industry, which I almost, since I... I got to know it better through your work. I'm al almost reluctant to call it an industry because it seems that all the industry is like one firm. And you went buying a million profiles from this dating sites to basically see what to do with them. What were the limits that you found, if you found any? Or again, to put it simpler, what happens to my data when I go on a dating site? And what cannot happen to it? That's a sad story. You don't know. 
And there is no way of knowing. I mean, you can speculate on a thousand million possibilities. And even the work I did was, was basically to some reverse engineering of uh, uh, trying to understand how many uh, parties or agents or companies and services could uh, potentially exploit this data, which it came to more than 700 different platforms back then in 2017 is when I did the research. Um and this was just accounted for accountable for desktop activity. So even doing this research, I knew where the data or who could potentially exploit the data, but I had no clue uh, what was done with this data. There was no way of knowing. Like privacy policies are very, very opaque in that res respect. They don't say, okay, we're going to use your data for this, for this. We're going to use your pictures to train AI even. We're going to use whatever, you know to anything, you don't know, there is no way of knowing and, and it shouldn't be like that. And we should really have like um, very um, precise uh, documents or archives or glossaries, wherever and how data, sorry, is being used and for which purposes and for which purpose is gonna be used in the future and, and which limits the use of our data has. We don't have this. Exactly. And we're not talking only about trackers because, of course, like all these websites and platforms, they also contain a lot of trackers and their apps <laughs> are tracking you a long time. But they also contain data that you have willingly provided to the application or to the website in order to find partners or to find friends or even to find long lasting love. And that data is particularly intimate, delicate, private, no? And yet, as it happens with the trackers that jump borders, you just cannot know <laughs> where does it go, who has it, and what are they doing with it. Yeah, yeah you don't. You don't know, and, and you are you are right. I mean, when it comes to online dating data, it's particularly sensitive in the sense that we tend to give out um, much more personal or intimate details of our life because the, the final purpose is to find a mate. And this is really sensitive. I mean, we would never disclose our probably our sexual orientation in Facebook or in Twitter. We would never even disclose if we had AIDS or we didn't. There is some apps that I asked for it and people is actually uh, answering them. Then we would probably never uh, answer questions of what colors are our eyes, uh, which is our weight, etc., uh, etc. Et so indeed, it's very sensitive. And the type of pictures that you post there, they are also quite sensitive, much more than in any other platform, social platform. Yeah, it's data. You, you don't want your employer to have, for instance, and this is data that human resources, multinational companies are buying every day. But then, I mean, I think we should now go like deep into your favorite topic, which I would say is energy <laughs> and CO2. And let's start with another with this project that I particularly like, where you go into the life of this insidious trackers through Amazon, like you buy this book in Amazon, humbly titled, I'm going to read the title because it is, it is too hard to remember. Humble mm -hmm. title, Life Lessons and Rules for Success, The Journey, The Teachable Moments and 10 Rules for Success, mm -hmm. Cultivated from the life and wisdom of Jeff Be Bezos. <laughs> so you buy this book. And <laughs> super humble. And in the buying of this book, or in the buying of any book in Amazon, you find that you have to travel, you have to traverse 
12 different interfaces, which is a journey you have called the hidden life of an Amazon user because it's hidden to the user itself. It's not that the Amazon user is trying to hide anything, but the things that happen to the Amazon user are hidden to himself because while you are traversing this like 12 interfaces, this is all happening in your browser, in your own machine, without you even noticing. So tell me what happens through these interfaces. What's going on there under the, underneath, the, underneath the browser? So um, actually, I mean, what I put intercept, what I try to intercept, it's something that's uh, really very immediate after in the browser. So it, it's not that hard, but even being easy and, and sort of accessible, we don't have access to it because we cannot read it. Uh, so these 12 interfaces, it was the minimum amount of steps that we already said that I had to do to buy this book. I had to rehearse this thousand times because it's very easy to get distracted and just uh, click on uh, suggestions and ads and just scroll up and down and whatever. Uh, so, so you, back then, you, mean, you mean you took the shortest route? That maybe yeah, when we buy a book, we actually go through a whole lot more. Yeah. Exactly, absolutely. I mean, probably like four or five times more interfaces. So I tried to keep it, you know, to the minimum. And even the minimum, but desktop activity back then in 2019, I always clarify this because as we talked before, those things change it changes as we speak. So it's like, uh, that's why I have to, uh, I need to place it or contextualize it in time. So it was 12 interfaces. So I tracked all the tracking code that was effectively downloaded in my browser back then. So it was 80 megabytes of information, which is not little. Just, I mean, we're, we're talking about text. We're not talking about images. I mean, gold is just text. Um, and that's equaled because I printed it for uh, several exhibitions, uh, more than 10,000 pages of printed code, which is massive. And when you see it, you know, like this massive tower of paper, you understand sort of the material dimension of this ubiquitous and sort of intangible and invisible tracking technologies. So it's not just that we are exploited by means of free labor in the sense that every time we access a website or any digital platform, our data, you know, it's being extracted, extracted, extracted to ultimately generate revenues for the people that extract this data. But also we need to afford part of the energy consumption of it because uh, a part of these tracking processes happen in our browser. Yeah, all the scripts, all the cookies have been downloaded in our, in our in our browser, and all the data transactions start in our browser, and we don't tend to see it like that. Right, something that I don't know why. All these processes are so obfuscated that our imagination stops for the lack of uh, understanding that we can have on those processes. Yeah, and I think that's. That's very sad and it's very dangerous. And, and those companies, they're also playing at this game. Yeah, so obfuscation works very, very well for them, not for us. Um, so this project that's about this, this double exploitation of the user. It's not like uh, we give the app data, <laughs> so we have to pay the energy cost of it. And for me, it was like a funny way to hack the uh, current narrative on surveillance, right? I think it's, it's interesting. It's like another perspective that I think opens other possibilities of possibilities that are worth exploring. It is hard enough to explain to people that every time you click on a link or you open or you search something in Google, something is happening 
probably overseas, like a fan is turned on and then a cooling system is activated and then a whole variety of processes are happening uh, somewhere else and some, some, someone else's computer generally in a server like hitting in the desert in Arizona or things like that. But we not always consider all the hidden, like under the iceberg, energy cost that we are budgeting in our own computers. This is something that I must confess I never thought about precisely because, I mean, you just don't feel it or you don't see it, no? Like we got used to have, I don't know, 50 tabs open and not think too much about it. But so this unknowing contribution <laughs> to not only a portion of the environmental cost footprint of the digital platforms, but also this footing a chunk of the bill is, I think, the starting point of your next project, which is called Carbolytics, and it's being commissioned by our house here, Axioma, and I think you go into the <laughs> premiering it next October in Sonar Plus D, so maybe you can tell us some details about it. Sure, there is a change in the schedule because um, this project we're doing uh, with Equalab with the supercomputing, uh, Barcelona Supercomputing Center. So we are doing a research that it's been delayed for several technical issues. Um, so sadly, we are not going to be able to premiere it in Sonar, but we're going to premiere oh. it in Axioma next year in February, March. Not that late. Yeah, because um, so basically, um, with Carbolytics, what we are trying to do is to analyze uh, the energy costs of the tracking technologies that are present in the top 1 million websites. I'm not sure if we're going to reach the 1 million, uh, but we're aiming at uh, half a million, 800,000. It will depend on Barcelona uh, supercomputing um, computational availability. So we are just doing this now. And, and the whole purpose of this project is just Aside from the fact to insist uh, in this idea that our uh, tracking technologies and uh, data extraction processes have probably a much bigger environmental toll to the user that, uh, than we tend to think or don't acknowledge at all, as you said. Um, but it's also uh, an idea of empowering the user in the sense that they should be able to actively um, make these companies respond for those emissions. Now, initially I was thinking about uh, maybe you could demand or doing a platform that could demand these platforms to uh, buy carbon offsets of all the global tracking technologies, which I think would be quite funny. It's like the same thing when you go and you buy an airplane, right? For example, uh, that's how you can make this ticking box. Yeah, pay one euro to offset the carbon footprint of this airplane. Uh, so I think that companies should be able to compensate users in the same way. Maybe not in the exact same way, because I have a lot of reticence uh, with these offset carbon markets. But I think it would be a way to play their own game, right? And pay them with the same coin, as we say in Spain. I'm not sure this exists in English. Um, but that's the whole idea. And, uh, whoops. and we're trying to do something like that. Yeah, I mean, I can see a class action going somewhere there, because... Of course, just one of us wouldn't wouldn't do much, but maybe a few hundred exactly. of us could definitely push for that and, repayment. And that's the idea. So I wonder Any how lawyer they... in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Sorry, Marta. Well, <laughs> no, before, sorry, someone is buzzing my door. I'm pretty sure it's going to be some Amazon, Amazon delivery person, <laughs> uh, which is only fitting. This is just, you know, real time situation, situational humor, I guess. So I, I want to remind our listeners again to submit any questions in the chat that you will find in the XML website. And yeah, and before I very reluctantly give you a way to our guests in the studio, I would like to discuss two of your, let's say, simplest and most, I think, the, the most seen projects of yours in festivals, conferences, and, and, and all sorts of talks. I know I have used them a lot is the ones that directly go directly to the hidden planet planetary cost of of platform capitalism so so you have on one hand the google google <laughs> co2 google yeah the google the google where you basically count how much co2 google emits since you open the page and then you have the the forest where you calculate the amount of trees that would be needed to absorb such GO2 generated by the Google page. So can you explain what's your approach for doing the maths in this case? Okay, so the maths were very complicated. As I did the first project, CO2, all the research in 2013. And uh, now there is much more awareness on the environmental impact of data, but uh, back then there was almost nothing. Uh, so I had a lot of trouble looking for precise data uh, and even now, I mean, most of the studies that uh, I've seen, they're very contextualized study that work in a network that has a, a preset uh, established conditions. So you cannot really extrapolate the whole internet. Also, let's not forget that the internet is probably uh, the biggest infrastructures that we ever built. And I always repeat this when I give talks, but that's true and it's the most invisible. Um, and there is so many uh, different ages that come uh, to configure the internet, it's impossible to determine its exact emissions because the internet is not just servers and data centers and Google, it's also our phones, it's also our computers, it's also our cameras, webcams. It's so, there are so many things, right? Um, so really, we don't really understand or we cannot know the energy impact and the environmental impact of uh, the internet. We just think it's hugely problematic. And this is not reserved just to the internet industry, it's reserved to all the other global massive industries, right? So I took this number from study that was published in 2008 in Berkeley um, that stated that the transferring of one megabyte of information equal to uh, 2.72 grams of CO2, yeah, which, which is not little considering the amount of megabytes that is being, are being translated in real time. And this number, probably might have changed a lot. Things became, uh, are becoming much more efficient, although efficient, although the data demand uh, has increased hugely in the last years. But in the first case in CO2Girl, I just, uh, this project tries to reveal the amount of emissions on average based on this study that the global business the world.com generate every second. Yeah. And for me, it wasn't so much about getting precise data because of course I'm an artist, I'm not an engineer and I don't have the means to make this calculation, but it's about uh, exploring ways to bring this um, to the public in this essence, uh, in the sense that I was very worried when I realized that I never made this connection before, that data has a materiality 
And I was very worried. Not a lot of people made it back then. So this project is just an excuse to uh, uh, make this equation very visible uh, in social imagination or bring it to the social imagination because it's something that wasn't there at all in 2013. Um, and then, as you can see, I mean, I'm not sure if the public can see the project, but just a sentence with numbers that go up and up and up. The piece is just about this. And when I did the forest, I kept in mind that CO2 girl explained a lot of things, but I always have problems with numbers when it comes to represent things. Um, because they say a lot, but they don't say a lot. I mean, uh, you can't really understand numbers in flesh, right? 30,000 tons of CO2, half a million tons of CO2. Yeah, well, it seems like a lot, but we don't really understand if it's a lot and what this really represents for us as humans living in this planet. Um, so the forest tries to uh, calculate, again, it's a super estimation, uh, the amount of trees needed to mitigate the amount of CO2 produced from the Google visits to Google.com uh, Google per second. And it's 23 trees per second, and they just keep on passing by. So it's 23 trees that just uh, accumulate and accumulate and accumulate, and it never stops, it never stops. And I felt every time I exhibited this project, it was much more effective uh, in terms of, effect, of touching the body and making people very scared and wanting to shut down the computer and throw it out of the window, yeah? So these two projects, they're really about exploring strategies, again, to bring this uh, equation of data equals materiality uh, to the broad public. Broad, you know, I mean, I'm artist. I have the exposure that I have, you know, which is quite limited most of the time. But this was the, this was the, the main goal. Hmm. Well, it is interesting, just for starters, that there is no way to calculate how much CO2 this, even just the servers are producing. Because, yeah, I mean, it is true that the internet is a very large infrastructure that has too many shapes and too many electricity bills to count. But it's also true that servers belonging to a particular digital platform are accountable and that their electricity bills should also be countable. But it seems to be one of these informations, one of these data that, that becomes very hard to calculate, just like taxes, <laughs> because they have their own, they have their own bills, electricity bills, no? Like they are used to go to places where they get special, special deals for setting up shop. And therefore you can't even make the calculation from their own payment of the cost, no? I, everything seems to be much cheaper for them, especially ruining the, the planet. But but the funny thing is that we do have a carbon budget, like we, not you and me, but um, the planet in general has a very, very specific carbon budget that is 233 gigatons, which is, you know, all the CO2 that we can liberate in the atmosphere before we cross the famous line of the 1.2 degrees. And so I was wondering when I was thinking about this, there is this project called Cut 1% where a very smart bunch of people have calculated how much CO2 can we cut from our production country-wise. And they came to the conclusion that if we could cut 11% of every country for the next six years, then maybe we could be in business regarding this budget. And I wonder how this would, I've been wondering ever since how this would fit into your work, because, you know, you're in the business of measuring this thing from an individual perspective. So I wonder if you could find 
maybe a way of introducing this cut 1% in what, like cut 1% of the tabs that you open? <laughs> or maybe, <laughs> sorry, no, 11% of the links that you click on or 11% of the things that you ask Google? <laughs> like, you know, let me Google this for you 11% less. I wonder if this could be a possibility for you. Well, maybe, I think... I mean, it would be funny as a project, I think, and as a, some sort of state of, uh, some sort of manifesto, right? But there is something that a lot of people ask me, that what individual actions we should take in order to prevent this. And I would say that this is not an individual responsibility. I mean, we cannot solve, even if we want to cut like this 1%, we're not going to solve the whole thing. And this is a systemic problem. It has to be addressed as such. Uh, and I think that uh, maybe Google should cut like 30%, maybe Amazon should cut 30%, maybe, uh, you know, like all the aviation industry should cut a lot. And I don't know, because I feel like all these companies, they just play again to this uh, neoliberalization of uh, guilt and responsibility, you know, like that outsource everything to the users. They're going to solve it and we're going to adapt, right? Um, and I'm really against that because they should be held accountable for that. But it's a good, uh, it'd be a funny project. Oh, really? <laughs> well, on that hopeful note, <laughs> I'm going to give you away to our guests in the studio and see what questions they have for you. Thank you. Hello. Yeah, it was really interesting to listen to your discussion. So I'm wondering if maybe as a collective we can try to use, I don't know, maybe more self-hosting, for instance, or if changing the way we use or the way we put our information online could make a change in this sense, or is it really all on the platforms that we probably can count on them, they will not do anything? That's a very good question, and I... I heard like versions of these questions throughout the years and it's really important because at the end is what, what can I do, right? How can this problem be addressed? More and more, I mean, I, I've been never techno-determinist and I think that technology uh, is not um, the way we're going to get out of this mess. And I think that self-hosting can be a good thing for creating community and, and a lot of other things, but I don't think... It's such a good idea in order to um, lower uh, CO2 because imagine that everybody in the world, every single community of 10, 20, 30 people would have a server. That also would mean a lot of uh, CO2s and probably it would be energy much less efficient that, than a data server in, in many senses. Um, now I'm doing a, a project in a, in a museum which is going to be uh, open, opening this week. So what I proposed to them, instead of doing a piece, I just told them, okay, let's operate for four months uh, at half of the energy that you're used to operate. And the first meeting we had, everybody was saying, oh, but we will need to put sensors and we'll need to monitor what's uh, wasting more energy and blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, no, people, you didn't get it. This is not going to be technically solved. What has to be solved or what has to be elaborated here is a new social contract. Yeah, we just have to do less things. We have to shut down the air. We have to shut down the very heavy 
energy intensive pieces, you know, that uh, have like a thousand screens and I don't know what. Maybe we have to open the museum three, four hours. Um, maybe the heating systems have to be shut down. Maybe there is some rooms that have to be closed. We have to think about other things. We cannot just put sensors everywhere and then measure the efficiency and then um, automatically close, you know, some lights or some airs or some servers or some this. And it's really interesting because it seems very complicated and all the setup to calculate all the energy consumption of the museum and, and to negotiate these things seem very complicated, but we just sat in a table the other day to uh, finally discuss what we're going to close, for how many hours we're going to open the air, for how many hours we're going to open the lights and so on. It was so easy, really. Um, now we have to do it. Uh, but it was a social negotiation. It was not a technical negotiation. And I think that uh, this is something that we miss. Yeah. And I'm very in favor of uh, really changing the social contract uh, more in terms of social interaction that adding more layers of technology to a problem that can be addressed uh, in another way. I hope this answered the question. Yeah, yeah. thank you. If I understand, we're basically just saying uh, take less, uh, make less work and take more rest. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's a lot of work to operate with less energy. It, it just... It's just another kind of, it's other interactions that have to be put mm -hmm. in place that replace others. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, I have to say, Joanna, that, I mean, Luca, I loved your question, especially because the only one time that I have been able to see where my email was happening was actually in a server, <laughs> in a Ludmilla server yeah. in Ljubljana where I could walk there and, and look at the place where my data was stored. I think that was the only time and the last time that I, that I will be able to have that unless, in fact, there is community servers. But I must say that I disagree with you, Joanna, that it would produce more in the sense that maybe if we were to have like a server in every building, lots of people wouldn't have to have a computer, for instance, no? Or a printer or a totally. whole number home appliances that are now, you know, going to waste <laughs> in people's homes, just doing one single thing, like showing movies or, or something like that. No, no, I completely agree. But then you're also talking about like a new social contract, like different social interactions, which I think it's very important. It's something I think it has to come together, but absolutely, you're right. Yeah, it reminds yeah, yeah, me yeah. what you're saying, Marta, of, of course, of kind of start of uh, Ludmila and the kind of the 90s where, yeah, we used a lot more shared uh, terminals, for instance, for accessing IRC. And of course, today, everybody has many terminals kind of basically going all the time. So, yeah, I think there is still ways to kind of lower, but it goes against the inertia and definitely against the system. So we really need to try. And again, like I think Joanna said very well, it's hard to pin the blame or ask for the solution to the user, but uh, it's uh, something that the system should think about and solve. We'll see. <laughs> Time is running out. Okay, thank you. I'll, I'll uh, give the space to the next question. Thank you. Hello. Um, Hello. So for me, based on what was said so far, I think one of the 
possibly useful or important words or concepts would be the commons. Because I think I, as a young boy, I grew up with this idea that the internet was a commons, right? And then corporations and capital came in and transformed it in a way into a resource, which is now being mined. Also, not just the idea part of the internet, but also the physical substance, right? Namely, my computer. And I think the planet, obviously, is a commons. But one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot recently, I read an article. It was actually a speech given by Ivan Illich in Japan in the 80s. Oh, it's super fun of him. And he basically, the title is Silence is a Commons. And he tells this story Mm -hmm. about how he was born and then he was brought to Brach on a boat. But the other thing that was brought to Brach on a boat with him was the first loudspeaker that ever came to Brach. And his argument is, before that, silence was a commons. Like, we all could compete in this silence with our bare voice. You could inhabit it, but then you had to go away. Like, you couldn't stay under the tree forever. Um, But then once the loudspeaker came, right, silence became a resource that could be used by a piece of technology. It wasn't something that belonged to people anymore. And I think this has very interesting consequences for the way we struggle with social media today. But based on the stuff that you've presented and the work that you do, and this is something I've been struggling, and I, don't, I honestly don't know what the answer to this is, but is privacy also structured as a commons? Is this also something which we should view and treat basically like a pasture or a park where we need a social contract in order to be able to retain some sort of privacy? And it's a give-give relationship instead of a take-take one. Wow, that's a really tough question. I really love this uh, story of silence. I think it's really beautiful. Um, Yeah, I really love Ivan Illich. Actually, The Hidden Life of an Amazon User was based in one of his essays, uh, Energy and Equity, uh, which I think is a wonderful essay as well. I don't know, it's a really, really really good question. And um, I don't think I'm able (laughs) to answer this live because I, I will need to give it a lot of thought because it's something quite profound, but I will definitely think about it. Um, I'm just afraid that I'm not sure, maybe Marta has a say on this. I'm not sure if GDPR um, just broke the possibility of uh, these comments uh, because this has been highly institutionalized and also technologized in a, in our websites, right? In every time we visit the website, uh, some sort of privacy can be really quantified thanks to GDPR as well, you know, uh, from the website that it has. But uh, no, it's, a, it's a beautiful uh, way of putting it. I would definitely give it, give it a thought. I mean, I mean it, but I need some time. <laughs> I don't think we have enough. Indeed, a very beautiful example. And I really like the idea of privacy as a commons precisely because as you were saying before about the, the possibility of doing less and not measuring it, <laughs> which is something that somehow the gamifies <laughs> the process itself in a time where everything is gamified. I think the question of privacy is being tackled, for instance, by the GDPR in a way that looks as a technical problem. And it isn't a technical problem. Like the technical problem is that because of copyright, we don't have access to the operations of digital platforms in their own servers. That's not a technical problem. That's a legal problem. But when it comes to the idea of privacy as a commons, I like it in the context of what Luca was asking about having self-servers, no, like community servers. And, and what happens 
when you bring the data to the neighborhood, the data where all your stuff is, if there would be like a community regulation of everybody else's privacy, no? If you're sharing the server with your neighbors in your community or in your school or in your work or whatever, like if there would be like a radical responsibility from everyone's part <laughs> to defend each other's privacy in that way. I guess this is what comes to mind, but I will definitely have to think about it too. Thank you. Thank you. Very intriguing questions. Yes. <laughs> Hello, I come from the digital policy area and I found your work very interesting because we struggle to influence the policymakers and also to gather understanding of users' policy issues. I think that it is important to investigate, to research these heavy issues and present them in stories through art and through other narratives, not only political or policy narratives. So I think that also your work is very important in the, in the area of COVID because COVID has accelerated the digital transformation and businesses, schools and citizens, we all moved to, to the cloud services and we massively shared our private data, business data, business secrets, and people are not aware. So last year, there were several breaches and disclosures of sensitive information, of business information, because we are not aware how to deal in this world. So my question is, do you collaborate with also with policymakers or you only do your research? This is the first question. And then the other question is, so with the pace of digital transformation, this carbon footprint will grow, will become bigger, more, more important issue. So what is your assessment of the future in terms of this digital transformation for the climate? Okay, thank you. Okay, I'll try to answer the best I can. I do collaborate with policymakers. Now I'm in touch with some people from the Greens in the Europe, uh, European Parliament. But the relationship hasn't been, I think we could go deeper. And for us, it's done poorly informative. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah I, do, I do collaborate with them. I also collaborated with uh, a big organization called uh, Culture Action Europe also in, in these matters. So I think it's really important for exactly what you say. I think art has this ability to uh, really uh, present things in a way that can affect the body. And, and this sounds very abstract and very uh, spiritual, dynamic, but it's really important because in a way that we can really understand the urgency of, of the problems that we need uh, to make uh, policy for. Yeah? And, and I, I hope that uh, artists, researchers, and, and people that do sort of work in the same line that I work, they would work close with policymakers. <laughs> they wouldn't see us so much as a... Uh, aliens in a way or like uh, people that does you know crazy things and they are artists and uh, whatever uh but yeah even with this stigma that we have um i've been collaborating uh with policymakers not very intensively but but i've been in touch with them and the second and i'm willing to do more <laughs> indeed and the second uh question i mean it's hard to tell there was these predictions that the it um, industry with consuming 2025, about more than 20, of, uh, 20 sorry, 25% of um, the global uh, production of electricity, which is not little, it's quite a lot. And, and there is this prediction, for example, in Ireland, where they have 
uh, a lot of uh, data center facilities, they have a problem, they're going to have a problem in the coming years, um, that there's not going to be enough electricity if the growing rate uh, keeps at the same pace uh, at, as it is now for the whole island. Yeah. Also, uh, I mean, it, our digital world will just be increasingly energy demanding, and that's that's a fact because it's just going to get bigger. Um, and yeah, it, it's worrying because, as we know, like there is physical limits to how much energy we can produce, but uh, we don't seem, or it doesn't seem that we're going to stop at any second. And again, it's not a tendency that just. Um, it just affects data and the internet industry. It affects all the other industries, as we are very well aware of. Yeah, but now with these smart cities initiatives, I think the problem becomes even worse. Yeah, and especially with 5G. I mean, with 3 and 4G networks, in average, we used to produce 2 gigabytes of um, information a month per user. And then with 5G, there is expected to, uh, that every user, on average, per month, and we will produce around 30 gigabytes of information. And that's like a massive jump in nothing. And I think that 5G is totally necessary. Yeah, they come with this story that, yeah, but the 5G is going to be much more efficient. The machines are going to be much more efficient. Well, yes, but what 5G is going to enable, it's like an even higher uh, rates of uh, data production, which when efficiency is going to end up being efficient. I'm not sure if you're aware of the Chevron's paradox. Um, it's a paradox of efficiency that was described by uh, um, an engineer, engineer, I'm sure it was an engineer, um, back in uh, the 19th century or 18th century. And it says that when technologies are getting increasingly efficient, um, the problem is that the demand raises dramatically. And so then the efficiency cannot take place because even the machinery is efficient, but the demand grows, grows, grows. So all the resources that there were uh, expected to be saved by creating a machine more efficient, uh, all the increasing demand of resources just killed it. Yeah. And, and I think it's exactly what's happening with any uh, technological improvement. Yeah, okay, Indeed. thank you very much. The efficiency paradox. 19th century, really? 18, 17, 18. It was when the coal mines in London. I mean, I can't remember the 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 date. I mean, Wikipedia, <laughs> but uh, but it was uh, it was this guy did this during uh, uh, the coal or heavy coal mining extraction in 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 the UK. So I guess it was eighteen, no? Absolutely. Clearly, we haven't resolved the paradox yet because we keep getting more and more efficient and we keep multiplying our <laughs> CO2 production. So I think it is time now to get to Nature and see if we have any questions from the audience. Hello. Hello. Hi, Nature. Hello. Hey. Hey to both of you. I just love the conversation. And Joanna, your projects always make me reflect for weeks. <laughs> Today, we have Thank selected you. three questions from, yeah, from, from the audience. The first one by Paul. They say, in the Dating Brokers project, you delve into data collection and selling. Can we protect ourselves as users of the services of companies that collect and sell our data? Is there any way to keep track of what websites are doing with our data? Sadly, we, we can't do it in an easy and fast way. 
I mean, there is uh, this very well-known documentary in the Cambridge Analytica uh, that there is this guy that is trying to uh, get his data back and reclaim his data. And, and I don't think he ever succeeded, right? And it, it's really, really hard to uh, protect your data because you don't really know where it's going. And even if you sort of track all the cookies that are just uh, sucking data from all your navigation, all the tracking technologies, everything, and you manage to track the companies um, that are using this data on paper, there's also a lot of third-party companies that they don't disclose that are also using this data. Yeah, so just like an infinite network of uh, of uh, agents of things that are exploiting data, and 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 also this can change because maybe there is a privacy policy that is very precise about uh, that there are third parties, but they also say that these third parties can change at any time. And what's going to happen with this data, right? Um, so it's just like an incredible opaque maze where users are absolutely agentsless, if that word exists in English. Um, so no, no, it, it's really, it's it's really hard and it's really concerning. And also, it's it's technically almost impossible to trace your data. Um, once every time we upload anything in the in the cloud, you know, in these data structures that are not in the cloud, they are basically on ground and underground, and they're very dirty and they consume a lot. Um, there is like thousands of copies that are being distributed across several different servers for. From I don't know, from Facebook, from um, Google, from everything, uh, from every single company. So it, it's really hard. They say that it's uh, physically impossible to raise yourself from the internet, even if you want, right? So no, it's it, it's hard. Unless yeah, the Chinese you. government wants you out. <laughs> yeah, thank you, John. I think that's the question that bothers us all, especially when it comes to dating profiles, right? We we tend mm -hmm. to share a lot, a lot more uh, there. Yeah, and it's even more worrying when it comes to our national health insurance uh, data. <laughs> you know, that's also something that is being uh, transferred under the table. Mm. Well, the user, uh, user, user asked the following question. They say, John, are your projects such as CO2Gal and the forest can make the viewer feel uneasy and powerless. When we become more aware of the consequences of our daily online actions, is there anything else we can do except feel guilty? Well, that user, user, <laughs> I'm gonna, it's, it's a great question. Uh, and, and it's not easy to answer, but maybe I'm gonna give you some relief. I mean, every time you interact with a website or with an app, you cannot negotiate with this company um, to waste less energy. Because no, imagine you could tell them, okay, I want to use your services, but Amazon, I don't want you to place any image of any suggestion. And I don't want you to track me at all because this is very energy intensive. You cannot do this. You can't negotiate with them, right? So either you can isolate yourself and not interact with any of those websites, which, yeah, you're going to have a very sort of sustainable life, but you're going to lose any agency um, on uh, actively doing something against them, yeah. But also it's very hard, and, and as I said, this is not an individual problem. It shouldn't be solved at an individual level. It's a systemic problem. And those companies should be held accountable for all this energy use, which it should be much less, yeah. And I think that our duty here is to organize ourselves 
collectively and to demand changes at the policy uh, policy making level. Uh, but that, but that's very hard, and that also implies a lot of energy from our side. But I think that's the only tool that we have available. Um, but don't feel guilty because you cannot negotiate. You have to take what you what you get. Otherwise, isolate yourself. So there is no my choice here. Thank you. Now for our third and last question, Hope Jordan asks, how do you personally see the role of art in the critical examination of new technologies? Uh, really, really good questions. I mean, simple, but straight to the point. Uh, I appreciate those. So that's also... I think it's very subjective and I'm going to give my personal opinion. I think for me, what allowed me as an artist, I'm not sure if what made me an artist, it's just the art practice or what I, I never thought I would be an artist. Um, but I use a lot of art techniques, or art methodologies uh, in order to examine uh, all these problematics and to critically engage with uh, technology. And I feel for me what art allowed to do is uh, you have very plastic methods um, and you don't have to solely rely on empirical evidence and, and a very fact, fact, fact check. You also allowed to play with speculation. Um, and also, as already what I mentioned, you, uh, you also, and also use your instincts a lot and, and, uh, and show it out there. And also what I, what I already said a couple of times um, during this talk is this ability for art to affect the body. Um, which you can show or generate awareness about something in, in a way that uh, it shakes you more than it would reading a paper or, or anything else. Uh, yeah, it, it's, for example, like, and I think, uh, like Martha, she's, she's a journalist, and I remember when I'm reading her books and the articles that she did, I understood things. Uh, much better because of the history that you put behind that I would when I read like a heavy policymaker paper or, or like a research paper and so on. So I think that it's just a way to show information that, that can go beyond information itself. I'm not sure. It, it's very hard to, because this becomes, it's becoming very metaphysical, but it's hard to express. Um, but I hope this answers the question. If not, you can re-ask me the question. Oh. And I can clarify. I think that was a very great answer. <laughs> yeah. Now, thank you again. And thanks to you both. And especially to our online audience posing so many great questions today. And now, Marta, I give the mic back to you. Thank well, you. thank you, Nadia. Always lovely to see you. And thank you to our three excellent guests. It was very, very good to see you too. And I think this is a wrap. Thank you, Joanna, for being an exceptional guest. I am super pleased to finally have you at uh, Reprogramming. You are a very, very interesting artist. You're also very prolific. And I must say, every work you make is even a bit more interesting than the previous one. So I am well, in all you. of your production. <laughs> And looking forward to see your next installation as soon as it comes out. So Supercomputer Center in Barcelona, just, you know, give it a push. We're all waiting. <laughs> <laughs>
So thank you. Thank you for being here. And thank you to all the people in the audience for your questions and for your attention. And I send you love. Uh, welcome back to Rick Programming. I'll see you next month. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, also from my side. Next week, we'll return with Marta Perano in conversation with filmmaker, writer, and political organizer Astra Taylor and contributions from our special guests. Reprogramming is a podcast series produced by yours truly, Yanis Vakinyansha and Marcelo Kretic for the Axioma Institute for Contemporary Arts Discursive Program, Tactics and Practice. All episodes were edited and mixed by Gasper Torkar, who is also the author of the amazing original sound and music. The whole thing was coordinated by Sonia Gardina and realized in the framework of CON's Platform for Contemporary Investigative Art. For more information on the context, participants and partners involved, see the link in the description. You are for the more welcome to visit axioma.org where you'll find a wealth of free content, including the book version of the reprogramming talks. And if you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon or by making a donation, but no pressure, of course. That's all for this episode. Greetings from Ljubljana and Nasvidenje.